Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. As the U.S. midterm elections approach next week, there is a renewed focus on political advertising in digital channels. For instance, a report from Global Witness and the Cybersecurity for Democracy team at NYU's Tandon School of Engineering, where I teach, found Facebook and TikTok failed to block ads with blatant misinformation about how and when to vote, with TikTok failing to catch 90% of such ads. But what is going on across the web beyond the social media platforms? A recent report from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill Center on Technology Policy found that as a result of restrictions on political ads instituted by major platforms ahead of the 2020 elections, political advertisers are increasingly turning to other platforms. Programmatic advertising accounts for a substantial and increasing share of political advertising, they say, and more attention needs to be paid to this complex and confusing ecosystem of companies, large and small, that serve up ads on websites, apps, streaming services, and other digitally connected devices. I had a chance to speak to the report's authors about their findings. Matt Peralt, I'm the director of the Center on Technology Policy at UNC Chapel Hill, and I'm also a consultant on tech policy issues. Scott Badwalt-Brennan, and I'm head of online expression policy at the Center on Technology Policy at UNC Chapel Hill. So the two of you are about a month out from having published a study that looks at political advertising on the internet, uh, but I think takes a sort of interesting perspective on it. Um, you point out that Meta, Google, Twitter, when most folks are talking about political advertising, they're talking about the big platforms, what happens there, what happens on social media, what happens in search, et cetera. But you focused instead on the programmatic advertising market. Yeah, um, it's, it's kind of a funny story. So we worked on a series of projects last year that looked more at political advertising on, on those major platforms and focused on the political advertising restrictions or blackouts in the 2020 election. And it was really working on, on, on those projects led us to, to realize that there's basically this whole other world of political advertising out there that no one is really talking about no one in our in our world right like of course there are people working in that but uh, the the policy community and the the academic research side are, have have given it far less attention and in fact one of the things we we found in in our work last year was that as a response to some of those limitations and restrictions that the major platforms were placing on political ads in the 2020 election and now they're they're uh, uh, here uh, in the in the in the midterms as well political advertisers are in fact moving to these alternate platforms and so we see them kind of growing in prominence um and so we thought you know it's really it'd be really important to sort of understand what sort of policies these these alternative platforms have as it relates to political advertising how they treat political ads what what political ads look like on uh, on these alternative platforms and so i understand that you've taken a sort of ethnographic plus secondary research approach to this interviewed folks who are players in the market, people who are uh, expert in this area. For the listener, give them a sense of scale. You point out that uh, somewhere between a quarter to almost half of spending on political advertising went to platforms other than Meta, Google, and Twitter. What kind of dollars are we talking about? And 
Uh, how important is this to the overall political spending in the U.S.? Um, that's a great question. And I wish I had sort of more concrete numbers uh, to offer you. Um, that range you, uh, you you said like a, a quarter to a half is, is huge, right? And that range represents billions of dollars. Unfortunately, we we don't know. There's just very little data about this this sort of spending, and those numbers are are estimates from from other organizations. You know, the the good debt kind of reliable data that we have, for example, from the FEC, which collects spending data from political committees. Uh, this is actually something we wrote a lot about last year. Thanks to the some of the like this one big loophole in the data that that are that are required to be collected. Basically, we don't know how how campaigns are actually spending money, and, and what it is is campaigns or committees have to report how they spend money. The the consultancies that they hire to place ads don't have to report that, and so. Um, basically, we know that committees are maybe spending a ton of money, putting a ton of money to to uh, political ad consultancies, but we have no idea if the, that money is going to Facebook or to Xander, for example. But we do know that it is billions of dollars every every yeah. election cycle. It's hard to estimate with specificity, which is why we provided such a wide range here. But what the point we were trying to make is there's been a lot of focus for understandable reasons about how platforms like Meta and Google and Snap and Reddit and other and Twitter and other companies shape political discourse. And that makes a ton of sense. What we were trying to say is, well, what does the rest of the market look like? And how do those platforms potentially shape political discourse? And so whether it's 25% or 50%, or even if it were as low as 10%, we think it's important to understand what the speech practices are on those platforms. So we're going to get into some of the specifics of your findings and also uh, your uh, recommendations to multiple players in this particular ecosystem. But before we do that, can we just talk a little bit about the context here? How did we end up in a situation where no one knows how much is being spent? Is this just, you know, Citizens United, American political spending, PACs run amok, no one knows that's the Wild West? You point out in the report that there are few federal or state regulations that govern programmatic political advertising. Is it just that there's no sheriff? Yes and no. I mean, um, it's not really Citizens United uh, that that is the problem here, although it is a problem elsewhere, of course. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the the big the big issue for lack of sort of understanding is is uh, is really what I said, like this issue about sub vendor reporting requirements, uh, which is this really kind of you know, niche, um, arcane kind of, you know, reg- regulation. You're, you're right that that uh, there are sort of very few kind of regulations that govern really any political advertising. They tend, you know, basically there's two forms, disclaimers and disclosures. Disclaimers, you know, the required uh, uh, text at the bottom of an ad, for example, that says, you know, this ad was paid for by so and so, and or so and so approves this ad, like in a in a uh, like a, a TV commercial or something. Uh, and then disclosures are the, the information that's required to be uh, submitted to to the government. But uh, I think as we, as we mentioned in the report, the the situation is basically like those existing regulations don't apply to all types of digital ads. They apply to some digital ads, but not all digital ads. And so there are some digital ads that uh, have no sort of uh, requirements to have disclosures or or disclaimers. Obviously, more federal law here would be helpful. And the thing that plagues federal law is this federal law is the thing that plagues all federal lawmaking, which is Congress is unable to pass legislation on a variety of different issues that are sort of fundamental to our discourse and democracy and life. 
including the regulation of elections. And so we point out a few areas here where we think congressional action would be particularly meaningful. Um, the second, of course, is the Federal Election Commission, which was sort of neutered on its birth by having a commission that has six commissioners. And there's a reason we don't have a Supreme Court. You know, the Supreme Court's not eight justices, um, typically, if you have an even number and you're assigning commissioners based on party with a split down the middle, that sets it up to be incredibly ineffective. So I think the Federal Election Commission has been slow to pass rules in a whole bunch of different areas, including thinking about how online platforms would shape political discourse. And when I mentioned Citizens United, I just meant it in the broader context of there are billions and billions pumped into political advertising in the United States. Uh, it would almost seem natural that few would know or be able to uh, spot exactly what's going on in the programmatic advertising market as a result of, of that scale. Scott talked about the arc of our research agenda. I guess I should be telling you that was like planned and strategic from the start, but it really has been more that we've backed into different areas where we think there's value in doing a report because we've asked a question that seems really basic on its surface and found that there's really not an answer. So um, we wrote, as Scott is alluding to, we wrote this report on methodology and kind of darker areas, more opaque areas of the advertising ecosystem. We didn't set out to write a report on methodology. We initially said there were political ad blackouts in the 2020 election. Did those work or did they fail? And when we started to get into the trying to answer that question, it ended up being really hard to do just because of the holes in the data. And so we ended up publishing initially a report on methodology as a, a sort of initial step on this broader effort to understand efficacy. And then when we understood something about efficacy of ad blackouts, we thought in the course of writing that report, we were thinking, well, the relevant data isn't just what advertising spending was on Meta and Google, for instance, because th those were the platforms where the blackout occurs. So we were trying to figure out, and, and Twitter, which shut down all political advertising prior to the 2020 cycle. So then we were trying to understand, well, where does the ad where do the ad dollars go? And then when you try to when you ask that question, there are all these challenges methodologically. And then also it points to this ecosystem that we think has probably absorbed some of the advertising spend that has left these other platforms. So there's sort of like a backdrop to the how the research has unfolded and the dialogue between me and Scott on these issues has unfolded that is driven in part just by where you can see data and where it's harder to see it. So you asked two key questions in the report, and I'll, I'll state them here. What policies do uh, DSPs, SSPs, ad exchanges have regarding political advertising in the U.S. and how do these policies compare to the policies of the major tech platform? So maybe to your point there, uh, Matt, kind of thinking about them in relation to uh, the major tech platforms, but as something separate, a separate and and more difficult to discern ecosystem. Uh, and then to what to what extent do programmatic political ads comply with existing laws? Let's start with with number one. Uh, when you looked under the hood of the programmatic ecosystem, which everyone has seen, I'm sure, a, a Lumascape or, or some other confusing graphic that points out how many hundreds or thousands of different entities are involved in these landscapes. What did you find? Or is it even possible really to sum up the quote unquote policies of that ecosystem? Yeah, it is. It is difficult to sum that up, but I think we can say a few a few things, uh, kind of big picture. So, 
first, I should say, you know, our findings are based on, as, as you said, from uh, some interviews with people in the space, but also a sort of systematic review of the policies at 61 different companies, uh, which we sort of identified as the major kind of companies in, in this space across those different categories, DSPs, SSPs, ad exchanges. You know, I think Matt has said repeatedly that that uh, uh, likes to sort of sum it up that like the the ad policies, broadly speaking, kind of look like you know, the, the major social media platforms looked, you know, maybe 10 years ago that on the whole, right, like the, the major platforms now have very detailed content policies and political ad policies or ad policies. Um, most of these companies do not. They have a brief and not particularly specific policies you know, that sort of holds across most of the the big sort of categories. So it's whether it's about the policies about the content that is permitted, whether it's policies about the transparency requirements that they have, or about the, even the disclaimers that are required. Now, I think the, the sort of kind of caveat to that is a lot of these companies, when they do have policies about, about ad content, tend to write them in ways that are super broad. So while, for example, Meta has very detailed rules about the types of false content that it doesn't allow or does allow, often if these companies have anything to say about false content, for example, they just say, you know, we do not allow false content, like some, something that broad in that general, often with very little sort of uh, insight into how they're actually defining that, how they're actually enforcing that. And what that ultimately kind of means is these companies probably like are reserving a great deal of latitude to make those decisions kind of on the fly. To like lift the veil a little bit on our research process, one one thing that was really hard for us was kind of figuring out how thinking through how to characterize that. So and we tr so we tried not to do it in the report, but obviously there are lots of people who would say like more developed policies here would be really helpful. Like we'd you'd want to see ad archives, you'd want to see more specific approaches to misinformation. You'd want to see more detail on enforcement. Um, and I think Scott and I have different, slightly different views on that. So we can talk about that in a little more detail. But what we really tried to emphasize here was kind of the primarily the descriptive element, just that um, if you think that the direction that large platforms have moved in is really good, then you would have more concerns, I think, about the remainder of the market. If you think the direction they've moved in is really problematic and it should be a little bit more um, in the stage that things looked, you know, where things look, how things looked 10 years ago, um, then you might actually think the rest of the market looks pretty good. The, the one thing that we, I think that we did state about why the practices of these companies that we focused on might be problematic is just from a user expectation standpoint, it's difficult to understand. I, I think it's difficult for an advertiser to understand what's going to be permitted and what's going to be prohibited and how is my speech going to be going to be treated. And we, we think that on balance is probably negative for political speech just because you'd want to have advertisers we think should have kind of clear expectations about what the guidance is on speech before they go before they start advertising. Well, and I guess a couple of things out too. There's also a way in which, right, you know, the 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 programmatic ad space is super complicated, and placing a programmatic ad involves like your content being passed amongst many different companies, or at least a couple different companies. And I think for me, one of the most kind of surprising and notable things we found was, you know, we had people say, you know, we don't understand what the policies are at the other companies we have to work with. And so 
you know, while it's important for a DSP to preserve the, their relationship with SSPs, right, they, they didn't know, like, what was acceptable and what was not. And so they said, like, we just have to sort of experiment. And sometimes ads will be kicked back, and we don't really know why that is. And so there's there's a way in which just better, you know, more clarity about what the rules are could help the efficiency of the market as well. The other thing I want to I want to say about uh, in response to your, your question, a number of the companies that we studied subscribe subscribe to the uh, di- uh, the the Digital Advertising Alliance, uh, which is a trade organization, uh, has a, a self regulatory principles of transparency and accountability that apply to political ads. What that means is basically this one trade organization is the is the only kind of trade level regulations about political ads. The, the interesting thing we found about this is one, these regulations are, are these self-regulations are incredibly minimal. They basically are just, you know, disclaimers that a state who paid for the ad and things like an address. But kind of more interestingly, the way they're written is basically to, to further reduce the ads that are, re- that, that, that are required to have them. So first of all, the DAA only applies to political advertisers, which is funny because the members of the DAA are not political advertisers, they're political advertising companies. And so that allows those companies to have the wiggle room to say, well, none of this applies to us because we're not political advertisers or political advertising platforms. Other members might say, well, we're the advertising platforms, but we have a responsibility to sort of enforce these rules for the ads that we carry. The other thing is these rules for the, from the DAA only apply to a very small sort of set of political ads that contain express advocacy. So those are, you know, very clear uh, statements about voting that you should, you know, vote for a particular candidate or against a particular candidate, and that are only at the federal or uh, statewide level. Statewide is governor or, you know, lieutenant governor. It does not include uh, at, the, at the district, state district level, where there, there are, of course, a, a lot of ads as well. Um, so we see like the one place that that tries to offer some regulations, some guidance on political ads, the, the rules are written in a way that allows a further incredible amount of, of latitude. Well, let's talk about your second question. To what extent do programmatic political ads comply with you know, existing laws, so not uh, their own self-regulation or industry self-regulation, but rather the laws of the land, whether they're federal or state. What did you find when you looked at this question? You know, I should say at the, you know, at the start that like, we're really sort of limited in our ability to assess this, mainly because of all of the companies that we looked at, only one has a, an archive, anything like an archive uh, of ad creative. And so in, in that, that company is Xander. And so we, this is the only sort of like set of ads that we had that we could use to sort of assess the requirements. The, the, the issue here is that Xander's archive is not meant to be um, comprehensive of all of the political ads that they serve. Rather, it's they, they have this archive, as far as we understand it, to, to make compliance with uh, state laws in, in just a couple of states that, that require there to be like additional sort of transparency. And so we basically only have, you know, incredibly limited sort of examples of political ads but for the states, like for particular states. And so, of course, like that makes sort of answering this question about federal laws, like not particularly doable. So the answer is you, you just can't know or, or don't know, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I guess because, you know, 
uh, from my point of view, like listening to you describe it, you could be describing, you know, an area where there is a, a massive amount of uh, illegal activity taking place. And, and we wouldn't know. Right. And we have very little insight into that. Yeah, no, I think that to me, that's like the, the stakes that we're dealing with here is mm-hmm. that like I strongly believe, right, that like we need better transparency. We need better understanding of what politi- the political ads in this space look like if only to better understand like if they are complying with the minimal sort of mm-hmm. federal rules or and state rules right like there are there are state rules on on political ads as well but if only to understand if those rules are 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 uh, are being followed uh we don't have that right now and and I know we'll talk about this in a minute but like that leads to like one of the recommendations we have is like how might we gain sort of better understanding of what political ads look like in the in the programmatic space Matt, based on your survey and, and look at this, I mean, there are various kind of anecdotal examples in the report of different uh, units of advertising, uh, messages that people have seen. I mean, do you suspect there's a lot of foul play going on? Are you uh, concerned about that? Or do you see this more as an area where more, I suppose, scrutiny, transparency may allay a concern of, you know, someone like me who's clearly concerned about it? Yeah, I mean, I so I think even asking the question, is there likely to be a lot of foul play here? In some ways, that almost is like narrower than the question that Scott and I are asking, because we're looking at what should sensible rules here be? There are lots of rules that should exist that don't. So like one example, I think, of like why it might be hard to answer your question is there's no federal prohibition on voter suppression. Um, and so it, it is permissible under federal law, or it's not, it's not illegal to, to run ads that suppress the vote. Um, that's problematic in our view. And we think there should be a federal law that prohibits that. You could run ads that suppress the vote that mislead people about the time and location of an election and not be in violation of law. So is that, that's not a legal activity, but it's problematic. I think from our standpoint, the macro issue is just, there's so much that people don't know that we don't know about what's happening in this space. And we're not on a path to learning more about it. I think that's like the really distressing thing from our standpoint. And so as a result, we're rerunning over and over again, a sort of similar playbook with very limited evidence of whether it works or fails. And that I think is what is most distressing to us. Like we, you know, we wrote a report suggesting as far as we could tell that it's likely that ad blackouts are counterproductive. And yet Meta announced that going into this election, it's going to run the same playbook that it ran from 2020. And maybe, maybe that is the right playbook. Maybe, maybe there's evidence that those are the right solutions, but our effort to understand that question suggested that it's, that those aren't the right solutions. And yet I think because there's sort of a high level political conversation here that kind of creates what's politically feasible, we are kind of engaging in the same cycle over and over again. So I think the right question is a little bit less like, is there nefarious activity and more like, do we have a shared understanding? This sounds like too academic, maybe, (laughs) maybe, but like, do we have a shared understanding of what the norms are around how you should speak online? And then do we have a system for ensuring that those norms can be realized in practice? And our finding is that we don't. And I guess it, I mean, just to underscore this or to, to tie it up on your Q2, if that, if you're, you know, you're listing out your hypotheses, to what extent do programmatic political ads comply with existing laws? It sounds like the answer is just simply, we don't know for the vast majority of players in the ecosystem. Yeah, I think, I think we don't know. And we would also suggest like platforms are not making enough information public to know the answer to that. 
And tip, I mean, every, I don't want to like overgeneralize, but I think typically when that's the case, it means that, that there are violations that are occurring. I think, I think it typically is the case that like specificity and transparency suggest an enforcement regime behind the scenes that's somewhat more robust. That's probably overgeneralization, overgeneralizing, but I'd be more skeptical given what we know rather than more optimistic. You're maybe not far off then from where I am, because I, I would assume if there's, uh, you know, again, not a not a sort of a, a sheriff uh, on some level that, that can can see the activity and understand it transparently. If civil society can't keep an eye on it, et cetera, if journalists, et cetera, that probably there are <laughs> problematic behaviors going on somewhere along yeah, the way. I, I should just I should say, um, and I'm, I'm totally blanking on the name of it, but but uh, Joan Donovan super well-known, you know, a uh, Harvard researcher in the misinformation space, put out a report in, I want to say it was 2018, uh, maybe partnering with that in society that did find notable examples of or uh, misinformation like in the in the programmatic space. Uh, and I, they're not, that, that wasn't the only report to do so. So there certainly is some indication that there is war in content. And of course, there's an activism community around some of that as well. Um, things like Check My Ads Institute. Exactly, um, yeah. But let's get into your uh, recommendations a little bit, because you kind of point out, you know, three groups of parties that essentially could behave differently. Uh, one is this digital advertising alliance uh, that you've already mentioned. Uh, then, of course, there are the companies themselves, and of course, then uh, policymakers at the both federal and the state level. Um, I don't know quite where to start here, but I suppose we won't go through all dozen recommendations. But maybe we should go uh, one by one through these different parties and. Perhaps there are a couple of, of those recommendations that you might highlight that you think are most important. Um, perhaps we'll start with the companies. Most importantly, we, we just want, you know, we just recommend that, that companies just, you know, have clear policies and make them public. Uh, and, and we want these, you know, policies to cover a wide range of things, right? Including content disclosures, targeting, transparency, and accountability. The same sort of things that political ad policies at the platforms kind of cover. Aside from what they should, what those policies should be, we just want them to have policies and make them clear. Uh, it seems honestly like a pretty low bar. Another one to follow up on that is that they should have clear sort of policies about enforcement. Right. Policies that are not enforced are not particularly meaningful. And in fact, like that's sort of been the lesson, right? In, in terms of content moderation, that, you know, companies may have detailed rules, but if those rules are not enforced uh, in, 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 in a consistent and meaningful way, then they're not particularly meaningful. Um, so we want them to have rules and we want those rules to be enforced. And then uh, the, the, the other big one that, that we say, in, in which actually, is a similar recommendation across the three types of, of organizations we talked about is, you know, we recommend that, that um, as, as Matt was talking about, that programmatic companies uh, prohibit ads intended to suppress voting, uh, such as supplying false information regarding things like voting location, date, process, or ID requirements. You know, our focus here was, you know, as Matt said, like a, a little bit more descriptive, but we ultimately kind of concluded that like, here's a type of content that we think has no sort of value, public value. And, you know, despite there not being federal prohibitions on this, on this type of content, we think that, that uh, you know, we feel very confident in saying that, that uh, it would be better off 
off if companies pr- prohibited that. And, and the same is true for the DAA, right? We we have recommendations about what the the DAA's rules. We we say the same thing, right? The DAA should should recommend that its member companies also prohibit this sort of content. And then we, as we have done uh, in other things that we've written, recommend that the the federal government pass laws that prohibit this type of content. Did the DAA or any of the 61 companies that you looked at for the report respond in any way to these recommendations? Or have you got any indication that they may take them on? Uh, We have had a couple of conversations with particular companies um, about our recommendations. No. (laughs) But but as far as, uh, yeah, to take them on, I, I, I don't know. Well, let's go to policymakers because, you know, of course, barring the companies or perhaps uh, this advertising alliance voluntarily uh, doing the right thing, because of some of the recommendations that you make, lawmakers could perhaps uh, take some action. Um, <laughs> I laugh only because, uh, you know, for some reason, it seems like they haven't over the last few years. What do you think Congress should do? What should states do? We, we do call for the creation of a, of a national archive of uh, digital and really non-digital political ads for federal office. And, and we would recommend that it is sort of maintained by the FEC. We can sort of see a way that it could be sort of piggybacked on to the, the existing you know, FEC filing requirements, uh, disclosure requirements. But the idea here is that some of the big platforms, right, like have these archives now, Meta, Google, that for political ads that they run or social issue ads that they run, which, you know, I'm really glad we have those. But one hand, right, like it's not a particularly workable situation to have every single company maintain their own database or their own archive of political ads. Uh, Not workable, right, for small companies that like it's, it might be Really, cost you know prohibitive cost wise, uh, but but it also doesn't allow us to sort of like get a good understanding of like what the whole landscape looks like, right? Matt, had, you know, mentioned that report we put out about ad blackouts. Right, our real question there was about the substitution effect, which you know, looking at an individual company's ad archives doesn't really help us look at how money moves across platforms. We recommend the sort of national archive, but more we, you know, because of some sort of concerns uh, about uh, actually First Amendment concerns about sort of compelled speech, we think that the place to put the burden here is on advertisers themselves, like like candidates or campaigns, and they should be required to uh, not only disclose right their spending, which they already do, and their donations, but also to disclose the ads that they run in some form. The thing is, like, we totally understand that, like, there's a there's a lot of sort of technical and practical, like, just challenges here to, to how this, like, w- might work. And, and we don't have necessarily answers to all of them, but, like, we think it would, it would definitely be in the public interest. This is one where we actually think there are, like, some sensible product solutions that could be helpful, too. So platforms, I think, I, um, I'm not an engineer, so I don't know this for sure, but I, I think it would be relatively easy to add into the ad, the advertiser flow some sort of checkbox or something that probably is checked as a default that where data is sent directly from the platform to the FEC or to a state election body. And I think that's the kind of thing that sort of that would likely facilitate doing this at scale, where just in the matter of course of running an advertisement, it's sort of a default that that's going to go, that information is going to be passed along to the right regulatory authority. And of course, you suggest that Congress should pass legislation prohibiting misinformation intended to suppress voting. And I assume you mean by that, technical information like, you know, the the polls are at the wrong place or giving the wrong time, that kind of thing, because I suppose figuring out what is misinformation 
intended to suppress voting could be extremely difficult on some level, right, to interpret um, all the various messages that could be given. Yeah, this, this is a recommendation that's been in several of our reports. And essentially, the idea here is to is to pass whatever would be constitutionally permissible. And so I think what you're getting at is like the, the broader it is, the more, the less likely it is to survive judicial scrutiny and our sense, and neither of us are first amendment constitutional experts, but our sense is that you can do something here. So it's very difficult to pass a law of this sort that would survive first amendment scrutiny, but that doesn't mean that no law would pass first amendment scrutiny. So um, what we have suggested is misinformation specifically related to time, place, and manner which is the kind of narrowness that the First Amendment requires. And it, it's not necessarily clear that even that would survive First Amendment scrutiny, but that's the direction that we that we would suggest. As a senator, uh, Obama actually introduced a version of this back in 2007, and it was included in H.R. 1 and then uh, also spun out into an, uh, its own bill. I think it was the Deceptive Practices and Voter Intimidation Act uh, in 2000. 21 uh it didn't it didn't pass but but uh, there's been a, some some interest in in this sort of bill it, well importantly i mean one of the other um i guess depending on your point of view but one of the other potential benefits of doing that is it's federal criminal law and section 230 provides an exemption to federal criminal law so to the extent that any online website were engaging were itself violating this deceptive practices law that website could be held liable um 230 would not provide a defense I guess just to finish up here, I'd be interested in a couple of things. Uh, one is if you know you have seen any response to your report uh, that gives you some some hope, perhaps um, that some of these types of changes might be under consideration with any of these parties, um, any lawmakers that reached out uh, or any you know kind of engagement with those companies that felt positive to you. And then you know we're obviously right in the midst of the midterm cycle. And whether you've observed any phenomena that you think are concerning after having done this report and what you'll continue to do, even as this cycle lapses, uh, to, to look at this problem or related problems. I think our main goal here was to bring attention to an area that people are not really talking about. There's a lot of concern about digital political ads, though very little of that concern is directed at the ads in the programmatic space. So I am really encouraged. Uh, we've had a lot of conversations with different people um, across different organ types of organizations, policymakers in, in, in industry or other academics talking about this, this problem. And so I am encouraged that like, you know, uh, there's hopefully like growing sort of recognition that we need to spend more time looking at this particular problem. Yeah, so I think that that's exactly right. I mean, one, you you are certainly right to say we've seen limited activity by Congress in this area. But one thing that Scott and I have increasingly tried to focus on is regulation at the state level, uh, because states have been much more active. And so there are states, Scott, there are there. What are the states that have already passed a ad archive law? California is the big one, yeah. Uh, which they're still sort of figuring out how it's going to be put into effect. But there there are something like six, eight states that have rules that basically require companies to disclose information if asked. <laughs> so uh, not to have like archives, but to, to make that, that information sort of available. So there is some traction at the state level, and we would expect more of that. Um, so I think that that's one area that we're sort of focused on as a, as a locus of policymaking. And then the second thing is, I think, you know, we're, we are 
focused to some extent just on documenting the opportunity to learn and then how little we learn from one election cycle to the next. And so our hope continues to be the aim here wasn't to make some certain set of companies look bad or look good. Our goal is really to kind of create a framework to hopefully improve how paid election speech, paid political speech is regulated from cycle to cycle. And the frustration for us is that there doesn't seem to be much improvement, but I think we're identifying areas where there could be and hopefully trying to provide a list of potential policy solutions that could improve it over time. Well, certainly that will leave lots of room for uh, your research agenda, I'm sure, to persist well into the future. So hopefully we'll have you back the next time you've got you know results to report. Um, and I thank you very much for speaking to me today. Thanks so much, Justin. Big fans of the podcast. So thank you for having us on. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Press.